You are listening to the Big Blue Rock Pod, produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. This podcast is a fun, conversational approach to discussing all things geology and earth processes. We primarily focus on Kentucky. We talk emerging ideas and research, along with classic topics in earth science for all levels of interest. Let's do the show! Hello and welcome to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I'm Matt Crawford, along with my co-hosts, Doug Curl and Sarah Arpin. Hey. Hey, Matt. Hello. Howdy. How's everyone doing? Pretty good. Good. Pretty good. Awesome. I feel I feel like everyone's very, very busy, maybe very, very stressed, lots of things going on, but this is our, this is our time to decompress. So before we get to our guest, I know all of us took some cool trips this summer, vacations, vacation slash work for some, for some of us. So I wanted to give our listeners uh, um, a little little piece of something cool that we all did this summer. So I'm, I'll ask each of you to, to uh, give our listeners one little geologic nugget from wherever you went, whatever you did this summer, uh, uh, something cool, interesting, unique geologically about where you went. All right, Doug, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I, I had a good geologic vacation to Scotland, which I'd never been to before, but um, saw a lot of neat stuff, probably the neater kind of neatest thing for the general public was this place, Fingal's Cave, which is big columnar basalts um, on the, it's kind of that one of the outer, uh, one of the Western islands of Scotland and um, it's big column basalts. And it's the other side of Giant's Causeway, if you've ever heard mm, yeah. of that in Ireland. But yeah, it was. You recommend it. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. And also, if you're not into geology, they also have puffins. So <laughs> that was probably the neater thing was the Sold. Yeah, puffins. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> Sarah? Cool. Um, yeah. So I am also working on my PhD right now, um, in addition to working here at the survey. And so my research is actually in the Bob Marshall Wilderness in Montana, where I'm looking at um, alpine caves and karst and the hydrogeology of this specific karst area. And so um, the top couple thousand feet of the mountain is Devonian limestone. There's a large cave system on the mountain with around 14 entrances. It's over nine kilometers long. Um, but in total on the mountain, there's over 100 cave entrances and m more exploration ongoing. So um, I just got back from... Uh, about 30 days in the, the wilderness of Montana. So pretty stoked. Yeah, that's awesome. Marmots, no puffins. Marmots. There are marmots. There are ornery deer that will suck your salt, suck the salt off your clothing. And so that's fine. What'd you do, Matt? <laughs> okay, mine is a plug for Dinosaur National Monument. I took a trip out west this summer with my family and we went to Dinosaur National Monument. It's uh, located uh, in the northern edge of the Colorado Plateau, so the park straddles Utah and Colorado, sort of in the high high desert. It's fascinating and beautiful. I mean, it's sort of this intersection of distinct uh, geographic and biologic regions. The geology is beautiful and fascinating. Uh, the paleontology is the big big draw there, but the structural geology is very cool and complicated and, and fascinating. Um, beautiful rocks. There was actually a, a geologic field camp from the University of Buffalo uh, at our camp campground, and they were they were having a ball and uh, doing some doing some structural geology mapping. It's really famous for what they call a dinosaur quarry. So, a brilliant paleontologist said we have we want to preserve these 
dinosaur fossils in place. So they built a visitor center over top of a natural outcrop to preserve the the fossils in their natural state. So it's it's kind of like a bucket list thing. I don't know to me to, for a geologist to see dinosaur fossils in place. In place, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was it was it's very cool. You know where where they were found. Uh, a Camarasaurus is the most common, kind of coolest, biggest maybe dinosaur uh, that was found there. It's a big sauropod. But anyway, I recommend Dinosaur National Monument. It's awesome. Yeah, that's a cool place. Okay, let's get to our guest. Our guest today is Bill Hanneberg. Bill is the director of the Kentucky Geological Survey and the Kentucky State Geologist. Bill is an accomplished geologist. Uh, and so today we were we plan on talking about all facets of being a state geologist, a little bit about state geological surveys in general. You know, I think it's kind of interesting how state surveys fit into the geologic community. Um, they're not all the same. And then uh, we can get into uh, research and outreach and, and other stuff with uh, surveys and, and Bill's, Bill's work. So, uh, Bill, welcome. I'll ask you to introduce yourself, uh, a little bit of your background, what you like to do, what you do at the moment. Take it, take it where you will. Yeah, thanks. I'm I'm glad to be here this afternoon. So I I can start with sort of a, a really quick biographical tour, uh, at least of as my life as as a geologist. But I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, not too far from Lake Erie. And actually, one of the first things I learned is we had a bunch of roads that were named Ridge, like Center Ridge and Butternut Ridge, and those were all ancient Lake Erie beach ridges. Uh, so it was kind of an early introduction to geology, and I became interested in in middle school and high school. And, and we had a, a really good science program there and some good geology teachers. And I went to Bowling Green State University in Ohio, the, the other Bowling Green. We like to call it the real Bowling Green. <laughs> and uh, got my bachelor's in geology there and went on to the University of Cincinnati for graduate school and did a master's project doing structural geology in, in the Appalachians in, in Western Virginia. And then took a year off, and I worked for a really tiny oil and gas company in the Appalachian Basin, in, working in southern Ohio mostly. And then came back and finished my PhD, and there was a interesting job open at New Mexico Tech, at the New Mexico, uh, what was then the New Mexico Bureau of Mines and Mineral Resources, which is basically their state geological survey. And it was kind of similar to this. It was within the university system in Mexico Tech is a tiny place compared to here. When I was there, I think there were barely a thousand students. And it started off as the Territorial School of Mines in 1889 before New Mexico was even a state. And the State Geological Survey was located there. And my job there was engineering geologist, although I spent about half my time working on groundwater, some really neat issues having to do with water resources in New Mexico and, and working with a, a really amazing group of people. We had a, a team that worked out the, the modern-day hydrogeologic framework of the Albuquerque Basin, which is a very structurally complicated basin. It's, it's in the middle of the Rio Grande Rift. And it was actually really gratifying because the, the city of Albuquerque and the state of New Mexico actually used a lot of our findings, for example, to, uh, to move forward with an intelligent water use plan. Uh, and I, I also worked on things like landslides and hydrocompactive soils. And we had some seismic hazards there. And after, after about 10 years, I, I was the assistant director and a senior scientist, and uh, I thought it would be interesting to live in Seattle for a while. So my wife and I talked about that, and we moved across the country, and I started consulting just as an independent consultant, uh, which was an interesting experience. Uh, 
maybe it's not something I would recommend to move across the country, not to a city where you don't know anybody and, and start consulting. But I, I ended up working on some really amazing projects. Uh, I was really fortunate because just as I was moving there, it happened that Seattle was one of the first places in the country where they were flying large scale LIDAR and they had the Puget Sound LIDAR Consortium. They were putting all this online for free. And I thought, well, maybe I should learn how to use this. And, and that turned out to be a big part of my consulting practice was doing uh, digital terrain modeling. Uh, eventually I started doing 3D rock slope modeling uh, and, and was always trying to do consulting projects that I thought were scientifically interesting and stay active in publishing and, and not just doing it to make money. For, for our listeners, sorry, we, we talked about LIDAR last episode, so everyone should listen to the GIS episode with Kent. We got into, we got into some LIDAR there. but That's right. Go, I, go I, ahead, I listened Bill. to that the other day. That was a really interesting conversation with Kent. But yeah, LIDAR is, is a tool, if I look back over the past 20 years or so, that has really revolutionized a lot of aspects of geology to the point where now, I think in a lot of cases, you can argue you can do a better job of mapping in our, say, our, our digital earth analysis lab with a good LIDAR data set than you can if you're out there on a steep hillside covered with blackberry bushes and it's raining and you're cut up and sweating and, <laughs> and cursing and uh, you, you can miss a lot of things that, that way. So I did that for about 12 years, I think, and was actually giving a talk in Houston about using airborne LIDAR for land-based things. And there happened to be somebody there in, in, who worked in deep water geohazard assessment and, you know, eight, 10, 12,000 feet of water who saw the presentation. And he, he turns out he was the principal geologist of, of the company. I eventually went to work for Fugro Geo Consulting. And he said, well, that's really neat. Come up to my office and I want to show you some stuff. And would you ever be interested in working on that? And it, that was also an amazing opportunity to go from working with airborne LIDAR to, uh, to basically LIDAR quality bathymetric images in, in very deep water and, and looking at the geomorphic processes there. Uh, and also when I, before I went to work in Houston too, one of the other things I, I, I'm really glad I did is, is got involved in some Himalayan field work, mostly through Lewis Owen at the University of Cincinnati uh, and published a number of papers on Himalayan slope stability, uh, worked with a Nepali civil engineer on, on his master's thesis project and, and helped him advise that. But I spent about 10 years in Houston, and that involved some really phenomenal technical work, like doing deep water geohazard assessments. We did some really innovative GIS things where we basically came up with ways to quantify and rank geologic hazards and put those into GIS and, and actually do a risk minimization process to more safely uh, identify subsea pipeline routes and even do things like probabilistic simulations. So we were generating equally probable random realizations of the seafloor and then running routing algorithms uh, across it. Uh, I ended up being a, a co-inventor on a patent that that's, it's currently applied for. It hasn't been granted yet. Uh, so we got to do a lot of neat stuff there. The, the downside is always, it was highly proprietary. So some of the projects we worked on would be absolutely amazing and, and maybe 10 people in the entire world will ever see it uh, because it was so confidential. And then a job open here and Somebody nominated me, I think, to the search committee and asked if I would at least talk to these people in Kentucky as a favor. And I said, well, okay, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not leaving Houston, but, but here I am. Talk about the role of a state geologist in general. I mean, in my mind, it's someone who has to wear a lot of hats. I know you do. You, you, you like to do your research. You're also research faculty at the department uh, across the street. 
you manage a lot of people, you talk to state legislatures. So is that, how do you mesh all those things and do all yeah, state geologists have to kind of wear a lot of hats? I, I think they're all different. Yeah. Just because of, of the, the different settings, uh, about 40% or so of the state geological surveys are within universities, like we are here at UK, and the other 60% are an executive branch agency. So they're in departments of nat natural resources or department of conservation or, or something like that. So that, I think that, that distinguishes between sort of two main classes of geological surveys. And I think we, we all do a lot of important and similar work, but I think working in a university setting is a lot different than if you were working in an executive branch agency setting. And that's one thing I really enjoy about the job here. In terms of the state geologist, I think it's actually a two-part job. So it's the state geologist part, which is being maybe the the senior scientist in the, in the state when it comes to geological kinds of things. And there's the direct, director of the survey, which I think is more of the administrative side, things like budgeting and personnel and yeah. strategic planning and, and so forth. Uh, so I do both. And then because of the particular details of my appointment here, my official job, if you call it human resources, it says I'm a professor. It doesn't say anything at all about state geologist. Hmm. And it turns out I'm, I'm a professor who has 75% administrative duties and 25% research duties, uh, which to me is attractive because I am still expected to be an active researcher in publishing and, and collaborating with others. And that's pretty much how my week gets divided up. Some days it's more like 5% research and 95% administration, but it, it varies. Uh, I sit on various boards and committees. I'm on the, the state geology licensing board. I'm on the geographic information advisory committee. I'm on the advisory boards for other centers here at UK, like the, uh, uh, like CAR, the, the, uh, Applied the Energy Research Center, Center yeah. for Applied Energy Research. I always want to say alternative energy research. And maybe, maybe I'll get there someday. Alternative is not quite the right word yet, but it's uh, applied energy research, uh, the, the new center for the environment, uh, the, the Water Resources Research Institute. So I'm on boards for that. I'm also on national committees. Uh, I was appointed by the Secretary of Interior to be on the National Geospatial Advisory Committee uh, for a three-year term. And, and that involves people representing the interests of uh, the federal government in the states and local and county governments. Uh, and, and we meet several times a year to discuss very high-level strategic things like the, the national spatial data infrastructure and how the entire country is going to move forward and particularly how the government is going to be able to support that and even what the spatial data infrastructure is. Is it an abstraction or is it something concrete like a bunch of the actual computers wired together? Uh, and, and, and what is it going to be 25 and 50 years down the road? And, and how do we prepare the country for that? Yeah. Um, and another hat you have to wear quite often is talking to the media. Um, and so I know you did, uh, you've done a lot of that the past week or so, con considering the catastrophic flooding in Eastern Kentucky, uh, the flooding, the landslides has been, been devastating, but you got a lot of calls from, uh, media outlets. I mean, wanted to know about the geology, about flooding, about mining, about climate change. So maybe say something quickly about, about that recent uh, endeavor. Yeah, I ended up doing, so far, 22 different media interviews, wow. ranging from local outlets here in Lexington. I, I was in Lex 18 yesterday and WEKU, uh, uh, some of the other local 
stations all the way to the week, weekend before last, I was on the, the BBC World News live spot on television and the China Global Television Network called me uh, just because everybody has heard about the, the incredibly tragic flooding we've had in eastern Kentucky. And it's attracted more attention than any natural disaster I think I've seen, maybe even the, the tornadoes we had last fall. Uh, but they all wanted to know, especially from the people who weren't from Kentucky, what it was like, what's the terrain like. They've maybe seen a few pictures and they'd read about the, this terrible flooding. Uh, so they wanted to know what it, what it, the terrain is like. They wanted to know why flooding is such a problem there. And, and of course, some of it's inescapable that it's steep mountainous terrain with very narrow valleys. And there are very few places to build except on floodplains. You, you can't really avoid it. Uh, the other things they were really curious about were climate change and, and our legacy of coal mining. And, and just about every one of the, the reporters asked about those, uh, particularly about climate change. And, and I'd say most of them also asked about the legacy of coal mining and, and, and whether or not mining made the flooding worse. And, and that was, I think, very challenging because we always want to convey an accurate uh, and, and a rigorous scientific message because there are a lot of people out there who will say it's flooding and there's coal mines, so the, the coal mines must have made it worse. And I think one of the most important things we can do following our, our objective of providing unbiased information is trying to, to factually explain what we know and what we don't know and what we can infer and what we might be able to infer if, if we had more information. Yeah, yeah, that's that's well said. So I, I have a few notes here about uh, state geological surveys, and we I'm just gonna I'll just read this really quick. I thought it was you know kind of kind of interesting. We don't we can expand on it or not if we want, but a, a couple of things I thought uh, would fit in good to the conversation here. There is a American Association of State Geologists. Um, is that is that it? AASG American Association. Oh, well, it's it's Association of American Association State Geologists. Association, yeah. Of, yeah. <laughs> uh, founded in 1908. Their mission seeks to advance the science uh, and practical application of geology and related earth sciences in the United States, its territories, commonwealths, and possessions. The first state survey, the website said, was in North Carolina. I didn't know that. Um, and that was found in 1823. By 1840, there were 15 state geological surveys. Um, KGS was founded, and its roots go back to 1838. And we became part of the University of Kentucky in 1948. Um, the first state geologist, I got, I'll quiz Bill. Who, who, do you know who the first state geologist is? William Williams Mather. You, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. Um, and I also wanted to say something about New Harmony, Indiana, because a lot, of, a lot of this came to be there. So New Harmony, Indiana was a settlement along the Wabash River in southwestern Indiana, um, a settlement became known for science research. It became a nationally recognized place, uh, mainly for geology, but there were other branches of science that were being uh, practiced there, visited by all kinds of famous people, in, including Charles Lyell, which is, I find, very cool. And I, don't, I guess I don't, don't really know how, wh I mean, why is New Harmony, but um, David Dale Owen uh, worked there, who was... Uh, a state geologist of Kentucky, but he was also a state geologist in two other states. The second headquarters of the U.S. Geological Survey was New Harmony. So feel free to comment anyone. About, but why New? Why was it New Harmony? I mean, what what was special about that? 
just in general, it, it was a sort of a utopian, uh, not society, but a, a utopian settlement that I think drew a lot of high-minded idealistic people dur during yeah. that time. Yeah. Uh, so I... I I, I think that's probably it. It was during its day. It was seen as a, a magnet for, for innovative thinkers and and yeah. Uh, but I, I'll throw in an interesting footnote about the AASG. Is in 1908, Theodore Roosevelt was the president, and you know he he did a lot towards the establishment of the national forests uh -huh. and basically trying to to put an end to a lot of the really rapacious practices that were going on. And he called all the state geologists to Washington. And that was, was the birth of the AASG. And we still meet there. Well, we haven't during COVID, but before COVID, we would meet there and we'd have a liaison in the fall and we would talk to the USGS and various congressional offices and, and government agencies like the Department of Energy and, and, and so forth and EPA and FEMA. And we'd have another spring late liaison that was usually in March or February or so. Uh, but the group always stays at the Cosmos Club, which is in, in, an, in a mansion along Massachusetts Avenue. And the significance of that is it was founded by John Wesley Powell, yeah. who was a very prominent early American geologist and Civil War veteran and the first person to, to lead a group down the Colorado River. And there are all kinds of stories about him scrambling up the rocks with one arm. And, and at one point, somebody had a come and rescue him. But in the Cosmos Club, it, it's a very kind of stately place. And, and, and gentlemen are expected to wear ties and coats at all times. And there's no business. You, you, you aren't allowed to discuss business in, in the dining room. That if you want to discuss business, you have to go to a separate room off one of the, the hallways. Oh. Uh, Does business mean geology? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, yeah. so if you're sitting there at breakfast with another state geologist, you can talk about you know, interesting trips or your families or the weather or something like that. But you, you are, if, if you were to open a briefcase and get out papers, somebody would come over and politely ask you to, <laughs> to step into the other room. And there's also billiards room. Uh, John, basically John was the Powell's billiards room and, and his, uh, his, his billiards cue. How's your so, billiards game? I, I, it's, it's sort of random. It's, it's, like a, it's like a Monte Carlo simulation. But it, it, it's interesting that we meet there and it has geologic roots. But, but uh, John Wesley Powell founded the Cosmos Club because he thought at the time, and this was like late 19th century, that Washington needed a place where basically intellectuals and others visiting town would have a place to congregate. So it has a hotel component and it has some meeting rooms and and he just wanted to be a, a place where intellectuals and you know, scientists, authors, uh, philosophers could gather in sort of a Victorian way and probably smoke their cigars and have their brandies and and discuss the issues of the day. Interesting. That's so cool. Yeah. We, you hinted at this earlier, but I thought it'd be good to distinguish other state surveys places, right? So you mentioned you know, a handful of surveys being parts of universities. And I think people find that interesting. I mean, when I tell people I work for the Kentucky Geological Survey, they, I'm at university, I'm a university employee. They, sometimes it's hard for them to fit that together. They think, oh, you're a state, state government employee, right? I'm like, well, kind of. So um, Talk about that maybe and, and how maybe surveys that are parts of universities versus other places, like I know Tennessee, right, is, is uh, part of the Division of Oil and Gas. Um, is that right? I, I don't like know what department, but weaved it's, in there it's a somehow. state agency. It's yes. a state agency. Mm -hmm. 
Ohio is the same. Ohio is the same way. Indiana is part of the university. Mm-hmm. But like, how do, how how do you see that sort of uh, leveraging the things we can get done? Or yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting because all the the geological surveys had very practical and pragmatic roots. In, in Kentucky, a group of citizens went to the state legislature and they said, "We we want an inventory of of the." The natural resources and wealth of the state, basically, so we can dig it up and sell it, and and all of the state surveys I think had similar roots in, and even the U.S. Geological Survey, a lot of it, its early work was exploring the, the West and 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 quantifying and characterizing the the natural resources of, of the Western U.S. And it's interesting too geographically if you look at the distribution of the surveys that the three West Coast surveys, California, Oregon, and Washington, are all executive branch agencies. The East Coast surveys are virtually, I think all of them are executive branch agencies. They're in you know, Virginia's and I think West Virginia are in their, is, is Virginia's in energy. West Virginia is like the, in the Department of Economic Development. Uh, Pennsylvania's in natural resources. So the, the coastal surveys tend to be executive branch surveys. And then you have this big swath through the heartland where the surveys are typically in either land grant universities like we are. Or if you look at, at Illinois, uh, in Indiana, the land grant university is Purdue, but they're, they're in the flagship university at least. Uh, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, they're, they're all uh, Texas, which is the biggest of them all. Louisiana is part of, of, of Louisiana Tech. Uh, Oklahoma is part of the University of Oklahoma. Then when you get to the mountain states, New Mexico, where I used to work was in Mexico School of Mines, Colorado's within now the Colorado School of Mines. They haven't always been there. Uh, Arizona's in the University of Arizona. That was a recent move as well. Uh, yeah, Arizona used to be in the university, then it moved out, and then it moved back. Uh, yeah. Nevada is in the, the School of Mines in Nevada and Montana. So you have the swath through the center of the country in the Rocky Mountains, where the surveys are either in land-grant universities or former state or territorial schools of mines, and then we get again to the West Coast where they go back to executive branch agencies. And, and I'm not sure why that is, except the idea of a land-grant university, if you look at when it started, the East Coast had been largely developed and you, you had all these growing states. And it, it seems like the, the kind of work we do at, at KGS and other geological surveys fits in really well with the land-grant idea that these would be practical universities where they taught uh, you know, engineering and mechanical, I think they used to call it the mechanical arts in addition to philosophy and literature. So I, I think if you look at the, the role and especially our modern day emphasis on, on science and the public interest, we fit really well into a university setting. And we also have a lot more freedom to develop some of the collaborations we have with, with right. people working uh, down the street in our medical campus, people in epidemiology and nursing and public health and, and even the, the collaborations we have with, with people like Cagle in, in science communications that ended up with me going to the Rhetoric Society of America conference in May. Uh, so if, if you think all the, the possible things you would imagine doing as a geologist, <laughs> probably going to the Rhetoric Society of America conference wouldn't be in the top 10, but it was, it was a great experience to go there and just see and spend the better part of a week in technical sessions with people whose business it is to think really hard and deeply about communication and how we communicate and how we persuade or, or don't persuade. Uh, so that was a, a neat experience as well. And and I don't that would have never happened, I think, if we were an executive branch agency. So just 
I think being in university affords so many opportunities to develop these really innovative and unique collaborations. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. Uh, we collaborate a lot with some folks over in civil engineering. That's been right, quite, yeah. quite fruitful right. over and the years. Our, our landslide group is very yeah. a flourishing small group that has people from earth and environmental sciences and yeah. and civil engineering. Uh, uh, Jun Fung has worked with Nathan Jacobs, who used to be in computer science. So we go down the, the street one way to the medical branches, and we work with those people. We walk down the street the other way to computer science. And if we want to work on applications of artificial intelligence or machine learning and geology, the, the people are literally a, a five-minute walk away from here. We don't have to go into super detail about this, but I, I thought I might give you an opportunity to talk about the strategic plan. This is, correct me if I'm wrong, this is something you implemented pretty quickly after you got the job here uh, in 2017. Uh, you wrote a strategic plan, and I feel like it's been a really good guiding document for staff members here. I don't want to speak for my co colleagues here necessarily, but I mean, yeah, I mean, um, it's, go ahead. Yeah. It's a short document. And yeah. It's, um, it's very, yeah, it's just what you said. It's good. Yeah. It's, it's well laid out. It's not, it's not, yeah, it's short, it's not over, yeah. overly complicated. It's just, you know, a streamlined kind of vision of what we want to do. Um, so do you want to say something about the strategic plan? Yeah. Yeah. When I came there, there was none. And I think it's always a good idea to at least think about the direction you're headed and, and where you want to be over a certain amount of time. But also I've been around long enough to see a lot of strategic plans that I think people probably put a lot of work into and there were committees assembled and, and bullet points written and, and sections numbered and, and metrics devised. And then they were, were so awful that nobody read them. It's like you got your copy and you put it on the shelf for five years until it came time to to update it. So one of the things that I wanted to do when I developed a strategic plan here is develop one that people would actually read and be engaged with and say, you know, that's the kind of place I want to work. That I, I wanted it to deliberately be visionary. I didn't want it to be bureaucratic at all. Uh, I, I, you know, there's quotes from, uh, there's a quote from Ernest Hemingway in it. I don't think a lot of strategic plans include that. And it talks about things like uh, random collisions of unusual suspects and, and, and serendipity and, and, and synergy and, and research collaborations. So I, I wanted deliberately to make it very aspirational and visionary and not just say by 2022, we will have increased our annual production of peer-reviewed papers from 1.2 papers per scientist to, to 2.6 papers per scientist and, and things like that, like a lot of strategic plans are. And you can go to strategic plan, writing classes and workshops, and they'll tell you you need quantifiable. Or is it SMART? There's some acronym for SMART, have it attainable and measurable and things like that. But I, I, I deliberately did not want it to be something like that. I wanted it to be something that you would read. And one, it would be short enough, you would actually read it. And two, you would come away from it energized and, and, and not exhausted and, and, and disheartened after you read the strategic plan, which I, I think unfortunately happens too much. Yeah, I think that's smart. I, I think it is used. I mean, I, I think staff members consulted with with annual reviews, and if they're getting maybe get through going through the promotion process, things like that. It's it's and hiring it's, hi, hiring absolutely. I mean, you were yeah, hired under the strategic. I was going to jump in and definitely yeah. say yeah. I read it before my interview, and it, it conveyed exactly you know what you were hoping. Um, oh, great! I'm, I'm, I'm and, glad. And, and a lot of people have said that, and even mm -hmm. people from other 
surveys have read it and, and, and complimented us. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and part of it too is, is because it, I think, was readable and engaging and partly because we made this happen, is that we didn't just file it on the shelf and go about business as usual, that often something would come up and I'll, I'll ask people, well, you know, explain to me how, how that fits in with our strategic plan. How does that help us achieve the goals of the strategic plan? And, and it, it was, and that, that was intentional, that we didn't want it to just go away and die. We wanted to make it something that we could refer to. And, and if we have a position vacant and are talking about filling it, and we can say maybe, maybe we don't need as many coal geologists as we did 30 years ago or 50 years ago. And if a position becomes vacant, how do we want to fill that position and, and in a way that's consistent with the strategic plan? So that, so it comes up over and over again when, when we have a big decision to make. I thought it would be cool and I think interesting and relevant to list some significant projects that this survey has accomplished. Kind of like, I don't know what you call them, benchmarks, but like significant accomplishments and we can, this can go into your tenure too but uh, some things i i listed just just to give people kind of a sen sense of some of the things we do here uh so I, I i've listed the statewide geologic mapping program that uh occurred in the 1960s and 70s that mapped the entire state of kentucky uh, geologically at a 1 to 24,000 scale i mean that's a huge accomplishment we are you know really heralded for that accomplishment I also thought of the groundwater research that I'm not as familiar with, but I, I knew in the late 90s, you all can maybe comment on this too, late 90s, early 2000s, I feel like the groundwater research here was really top-notch and like really forward-thinking and, uh, you know, it was kind of part of the environmental movement at the time and um, just kind of, it was just a topic at the time that really helped put KGS on the map, I think, as a really top, top survey. Uh, then uh, the digital mapping program, uh, Doug and I were part of that for several years and major accomplishment to digitize all 707 quadrangles, put them in GIS. And that's now the, again, the bread and butter for so many things we, we do here to have digital geology. I mean, I remember being <laughs> around someone's desk, Doug, and we were all gathered around watching the person digitize the last arc on the map and we, wow. we yeah. celebrated yeah, yeah. <laughs> however many miles of yeah. arcs it, it was yeah. in the GIS to the moon and back. Uh, yeah. And, and also coal. Don't forget about coal. Yes. Even yeah, though coal research. a lot of coal research. The, the economic yeah. impact of coal is declining, but for a long time, and, and we still are leaders in coal. Uh, and, and you look at the people here like, like Cortland and Steve Grab, right. who have won basically the Lifetime Achievement Awards from the the Geological Society of America for their contributions to coal science, and and also Jim Hauer, who was at CAR. So I think there are very few places of our size where you have three of the of these career contribution award winners. Another one is is the Seismic Network, which came out of the the new Madrid issues, and especially uh, going back to what the nineteen ninety or so to the days of Ivan Browning and his ridiculous predictions <laughs> that were shutting down schools, and in that I think. For all, all the harm it caused, it may have been good because it focused attention on New Madrid. And we started thinking, okay, maybe earthquakes aren't in California and maybe in, in some ways we're actually at higher risk because in California they know they're going to have earthquakes and they prepare for them, whereas in, in the Midwest we didn't. But if you look around, we are 
really one of the few geological surveys that maintains a seismic network. They, they've been setting one up in Texas because of all the, the fracking-induced seismicity, but ours is, is probably the biggest and most robust, at least that I can think of off the top of my head, of, of any seismic network that's run by a state geological survey. So that's for the, for the record, I, I cut school the day Ivan Browning had that uh, predicted there would be a large earthquake. I was like, oh, I, was, I think I was a junior, junior caution, in high school. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be caught in high school today. You don't want to be there. I went out to lunch. (laughs) And and the the mapping program that you mentioned is is truly unprecedented. And and no state has come anywhere near close to that uh, all these years later. Uh, I don't think even any country. It's really, I I think it's internationally unprecedented. And there were 707 seven and a half minute quadrangles in Kentucky. And they, they took from 1960 to, to 1978 to actually do the mapping. And if you do the math, that comes out to something like 38 or 39 quadrangles a year they were turning out. And it was in the days before there were many interstate highways at all, certainly before there was the internet or cell phones. Uh, and, and they were mapping on paper and mylar. There was no GIS at that time. And that that's phenomenal. Uh, one time I sat down and, and calculated what the current costs would be, and there would be something like about 85 to $90 million to redo that if we were to, to do it right now in 2022 dollars, or I don't know, maybe after this past year, maybe a couple of million dollars more with inflation. Yeah, But I mean, that was the size of the investment, which is just astounding that that's more than the, than the entire country spends on geologic mapping every year. And the other really important thing about that is people have done benefit cost studies and the the benefits accrued from that are very very large there you, you can discuss the details of how they calculated those but it, it's not just like paying for itself or it's not just like two or three times it's it's something like 20 times yeah the the cost of the mapping and, and we're still using those maps and 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 accruing economic benefits from them even though the last paper one was turned out when 1982 I think was when the last paper map was published. Mm. I think the Illinois survey did did that study. Maybe there's multiple studies, but they, I remember did them. They did a cost benefit. Yeah, that's one everybody's quoted, and, and maybe Jim Cobb helped out on that. Maybe yeah, that yeah. specifically studied because they they looked at Kentucky and specifically studied it. Yeah. And, and the AASG has been doing a much broader one over the past year or so, a nationwide study, and they're asking people to mm. to give them information about how much money it saves. Say if. if you're working for an engineering consulting firm and you want to do a project, it, it saves you a lot of money if you think about how much it would cost to actually go out and map a quadrangle or half a quadrangle if you need to do that for every project. And, and that's how this, the savings add up so quickly. It's like millions of dollars just rolling by your eyes and in terms of the money that having these maps, and especially now having them available digitally and online, saves. And, and in terms of disasters avoided, in terms of construction mishaps and and right. not having to reroute things or you know finding out wow there are sinkholes around here that yeah. it has it has tremendous value yeah i thought of a few other yeah i think major projects like don't we have some of the oldest oil and gas um drilling fields in the country i think that was I pretty think, yeah we have some of the oldest wells in the country and a very robust oil and gas database that's mm-hmm. you know that started in the 70s was mm-hmm. building that database so mm-hmm. yeah i mean that's that and then like our, our core facility and our core collection um, is something that's pretty important, I, th- I think. Um, and then 
one of the big things I really like to wrap my head around, we were talking at the beginning about the start of the founding of, of KGS. And so we said, you know, that we root back to 1838. So I really like to just do the math on that. 184 years of data. Like, yeah. can you imagine how much information has been collected in those 184 years? And um, a lot of what we're doing, we talked about going from the geologic mapping to then turning that into digital um, information using GIS. So a lot of our projects are just continuing to move the data um, that was collected over the past 180 years or whatever into something that's usable now. And so um, I think all these projects, like we continue to make sure that we update the data and, and can put it in things like GIS and stuff. So I think that's really important as well. Yeah, even the, the textual data, if you think about it, that if it, even if it's not something you put in GIS, it, it's information about the state of Kentucky in 1830 and 1840 and 60 and 70. And we don't we haven't figured out quite how to do it, but that might be the, the sort of thing that is, is just ripe for an, an data mining, artificial intelligence approach, because there's an incredible amount of data in there if we can start looking at the text. So I think that that has a lot of potential. And the, the other thing that's impressive about that too is you mentioned Charles Lyell earlier, who, of course, wrote the the, the book, or it's actually three volumes that are, I think a lot of people consider the foundations of modern geology. And those were published in three parts from, I think, 1830 to 1833. And then here we were in 1838. And you can imagine maybe at that time how long it would take to get a book from London over here to Kentucky. Uh, so they were, in a lot of ways, still hot off the press. Uh, when when Kentucky was starting its first geological survey, which I think is pretty impressive too, that it was really at the time of of, of the birth and growth, especially of, of geology in general, but especially of uh, North American geology. Uh, I th also uh, thought it'd be good to talk about Bill. Some some of this has been mentioned already, but wanted to give you a chance to talk about some specific research interests uh, of yours here at the survey since you've been here at the survey. Some research uh, you've accomplished. You and I are landside people. We, Some of the people we know in the landside community overlap and have worked with uh, some common people. Uh, but you're an accomplished hazards geologist and engineering geologist. Uh, but, but you do, you have a wide variety of expertise and interests. So uh, I don't know, take, take a minute to talk about some other re specific research yeah. interests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I started, I've been working on landslides for years. My PhD dissertation research was on a Cope Formation landslide west of Cincinnati along the Ohio River. So although it wasn't in Kentucky, I could see Kentucky literally from my field area. Uh, and we have a lot of the same problems here. And I, I, I got in that kind of accidentally because I like geomechanics and structural geology and took some groundwater classes and the concept of pore pressure and effective stress seemed to tie together geomechanics and, and hydrogeology. And, and there was a convenient field area, and I wanted to finish my degree, and and here I am, like thirty five years later, still working on landslides, and and so that yeah, that's been a continuing theme, and especially not just looking at the academic aspects of landslides and say landscape evolution, which could be fascinating, uh, but but looking at the the societal impacts and how do we deal with those as hazards, and how do we communicate the, the hazards, uh, how how do we assess the hazards and risks. So then that's something I'm, I'm really glad to see that we're continuing to do here and, and doing some things that I think are models for a lot of other places, the way we're now 
combining airborne LIDAR with things like machine learning algorithms and bringing in information about infrastructure and, and the costs of, of hazards. Uh, and, and then I've got to work on other, uh, it was actually a project the first time I met Jason Dorch, and it had to do with his dissertation working on paleo mega landslides in the Himalayas and trying to figure out if they were due to, to climate chase, uh, change induced increases in rainfall or seismicity. Working in the Himalayas as, as, as a geologist is, is phenomenal because there's, there's nothing you can see in North America that will ever come close to the, the, the amount of relief and the scale of the processes and the discharge of the rivers. So I, yeah, that's always been a theme. And even when I was doing marine stuff, we would deal with submarine landslides that you'd measure in cubic miles and could run out for tens of miles under those conditions and trying to figure out would, would they ever occur again? And, and what are the safety issues? And, and in that case, it had to do with offshore oil and gas development, but some of it was even, could they cause an onshore tsunami? So that, that's been a really constant theme. And, and then when technologies like LIDAR came around, we could do so much more with digital elevation modeling and yeah, apply it to landslides and say, okay, instead of doing a engineering slope stability calculation at one point, we have this digital elevation model and we can take that and, and apply it over the entire digital elevation model and start integrating physics and digital terrain modeling and, and some elements of, of probability theory. Uh, so I've done that. I, I, one of the other really fascinating things is the work we've been doing with, with Kegel and communications and stakeholder engagement and really rethinking a lot of what we, we have always done in, in science communications. We've talked about that, or we, we follow something called the deficit model. And that's basically the idea that we scientists have the information and other people don't. And the process of, or purpose of scientific communication is just to convey that information to them. And if they have enough information, finally they'll say, aha, now I understand. And it turns out it's, it's far more complicated than that. And a lot of the work we're doing with Kegel has been talking about how do we engage people and also respect their knowledge because they if you go to Eastern Kentucky, as we did for our National Academy of Sciences study, they know a lot more about that land than we ever will because they live there and their parents live there and their grandparents live there. And, and that they're a very valid source of information that can inform what kind of research needs to be done and the ways it needs to be presented. So I, I think that's really exciting work. And then GeoHealth, I, I see there's on the list too. And that's something, again, I probably never would have imagined I would be working on. But because we have these, these outstanding statewide geologic maps, and because we have people like Ellen Hahn, I guess she's metaphorically down the street. Physically, she's actually on Harrodsburg Road, but she's in the medical community and public health community, and she was interested in radon. And She's in College of Nursing. Yeah, right? she's in College yeah. of Nursing, and radon comes from rocks. And, and Bethany Overfield, who used to work for here, made that connection and, and started off this collaboration to where now, because of all those things converging, we have probably the country's most sophisticated geologically based indoor radon potential map that previously they would map radon potential by counties or census zones. But the rocks don't stop at county boundaries and they don't stop at census zones. So we were able to combine the geologic map with almost 72,000 home radon test kit results and find out that, yeah, actually different formations have different indoor radon potential. And, and we can actually use that to inform people. We can use it to help mitigate problems. Uh, and that's led to a lot of research. Uh, even some of the things we're doing now with the, the, we call it the radon drone, but it's actually, we have an airborne spectrometer. We're trying to learn how to use with our drone to 
eventually to be able to make radon potential maps of an area. Say before you build a subdivision, you can find are there radon hotspots there because if you're going to, to mitigate a problem, it's, it's far less expensive and simpler to do it before you build the house or while you're building the house than, than after you build the house. I, I flew it this morning. Yeah, there uh, you go. When I went out with Drew and Alex and we, we flew it uh, yeah. at this field near near Earl. So yeah, and good. that's really cutting edge research. If you, you go to a conference and you tell people we're, we're flying a radon drone with a spectrometer on it, that, that's- Ears they're, perk they're, up. Yeah. They're amazed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's, it's another area where we're, I think because we are in a major research university and you have to give a lot of credit to UK that they're, they're constantly striving and now are by some measures one of the top 25 public research universities in the country. And being in that kind of environment is, is really energizing and, and, and uh, makes you aspire to, to keep doing better things. We're approaching 50 minutes here. Really thank you for your time, Bill. I maybe wanted to end on sort of a big question, uh, kind of career trends in geology. Where, where is geology research going? We talked to Mike McGlue a few episodes back. He was on the Bourbon episode, but, but I've, I've talked to him some about the majors or the department and num numbers kind of declining, which is a little bit a little bit alarming when there's such a need for earth scientists, I think. I'm biased, probably. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's lots of, lots of important, complicated issues, and, and geology is, is, needs to be a part of that. I don't know. Where do you see careers in, in geology trending, um, research-wise, people-wise? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, one, the, the declines aren't limited to the UK. I think we're seeing them yeah. a lot of places. In fact, even uh, Ian Stewart, who's visited here and, and spoken, a very well-known, he's actually a Scottish geologist working in, in Great Britain, has talked about it there and reimagining what geology is going to be like. And I think there are a number of factors contributing it. One, that historically... If you're a geologist, odds are you would either go into oil and gas or mining, and then maybe some people would go into environmental things or groundwater. But the lucrative career path was to go into mining. And if, if you go to the Geological Society of America meeting and look at who the, the, the platinum sponsors are with the big signs, it's Exxon and Chevron. And and we have that legacy. And if you look back at it, as people are starting to do, it's, it's uh, in a lot of cases, a very colonial, racist legacy. Uh, and And... I think a lot of young students are looking at it and saying, do I really want to go into that field? And a lot of departments are that you might have the, the Exxon Sedimentology Lab or the BP Endowed Professorship. And students are saying, hey, I want to make the world a better place. And this department is like funded by oil companies and, and they, they, you know, they're, they're a fracking department or something like that. So I think that discourages students. So I think part of it's an image problem because we clearly are going to need resources. If we shut off oil tomorrow, it would be catastrophic. We, we need to think, figure out a way to ramp down intentionally. We, we're also going to need incredible mineral resources to do an energy transition. And I think people often overlook that. And we have to make sure that I've had people tell me in public discussions that it, it's we, we just have to mine this stuff. doesn't matter where because we, 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 we need to get the materials for an energy transition. And I've always said, well, we also need to make sure we do this in a way that's environmentally sound or sound as we can make it, a way that's equitable and just for the people doing the mining so you don't have children in Congo digging with their hands to, to get the cobalt we use in our electronics here. So, so we can't just say we're not going to do any more mining or petroleum geology, but we have to I think, completely rethink how we do it. 
I think do it more responsibly. I think professional groups have to step up and take the leadership. And I, I think in terms of things like technology too, that often we think of geology as this outdoor, I, I call it the, the sort of Patagonia catalog image of geology. And a lot of us, a lot of us love outdoor things. And I, you, know, you, you have your fleece and your Gore-Tex and you're out in the mountains and things like that. But a lot of the important stuff we do isn't like that. And I think one that discourages a lot of people if, if you think you have to be like that to be a geologist. And, and sometimes I've been asked to give talks about the future of geology. And I point out things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. And those are going to happen and people are going to do it, whether or not the geologists are on board. So I think one of the key things we have to do is develop people who, who can communicate really well and better than we have before, people who are fluent in using or at least collaborating with people, doing AI and machine learning to make sure it's done right. Uh, not that it should replace geologists, but it can certainly make us more effective. Uh, in Houston, you'd see a lot of geologists. You could always tell the old geologists because they would have their wrist braces on because they had carpal tunnel from digitizing. And you know, sometimes you think if you're a geologist, what is a workplace injury? And you say, well, it's falling off a mountain or something or or getting hit by a rock. And then sadly, it's, it's like repetitive stress injuries from sitting at a keyboard. So there are a lot of ways we can, I think, guide or direct and use technologies like, like AI and, and the amazing amount of satellite imagery when you're, you're talking, you've gone beyond megabytes and terabytes and we're up to like petaflops and computing capacity and petabytes of storage, that, that that's going to be the world. And the people in geology who figure that out and develop those skills, I think are the ones who are, are, are going to prosper. And I think a lot of other people are going to be left behind. Bill, thank you very much for being a guest. You're welcome. You, 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 uh, you gave us the blessing for to doing this crazy adventure in the first place. So we, we figured we had, to, we had to get you Yeah, on. that's right. I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's uh, part of a visionary plan, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. We, yeah. We're still going. It's, it's, it's a good well. way to communicate what we're yeah. working on and interesting things about yeah. the science. And yeah. Mm-hmm. All this right. is a really good overview, I think, of yeah. what we do. And All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. All right. Bye. This podcast was produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. Special thanks to Ben Corwin and Alicia Gregory at UK's Office of Research Communications for technical support. If you have any ideas for the show, email mcrawford at uky.edu. Thanks for listening.